Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. At the Association of the United States Army's recent conference and trade show in Washington, D.C., we met with United States Army Major General Ross Kaufman, the director of the Next Generation Combat Vehicles Cross-Functional Team at the U.S. Army Futures Command. He's spearheading development of an array of new vehicles that will be more interconnected than ever before to allow the Army to fight anywhere in the world, no matter whether the adversary is in Asia, Europe, the desert, or the Arctic. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage. L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. And Raphael USA sponsored our AUSA coverage. Here's our conversation with General Kaufman. Sir, uh, pleasure uh, seeing you again. Last time we met in person was in uh, 2019, and uh, you're looking great. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm great to be here, AUSA. It's always a super event, but back here in person. And yeah, I mean, the last time we, we met was... I think it was like 17.30 on the third day of AUSA, but it was just a, a great interview, so I am really happy to be back with you. Um, it, it, absolute pleasure, sir. Um, you have one of the more interesting programs in the United States Army, right? You're, you have an optionally manned uh, capability you're del- uh, delivering. You're trying to take uh, account into uh, anti-access area denial capabilities, uh, ever more precise fires, uh, electromagnetic environment. Folks have a tendency of thinking of you as a vehicle guy, but you're actually integral in project convergence as well because the vehicles have to operate in this contested uh, cyber and electromagnetic environment with um, a better command and control system uh, that may be actually severely degraded. And people have a tendency of thinking of this as a Europe program, but actually it's a global program and is going to be integral in the Pacific. First, give us an update on where we stand on the vehicle development effort uh, you know, give us a quick update on that because uh, then we'd like to go into how you guys are actually tying into the bigger uh, sort of army connectivity picture as well. No, absolutely. And there's no secret that the, Ar- the United States Army has struggled with its Bradley replacement for some years. Okay. And what we realized is that we didn't want to touch the hot stove once again. So we're doing something completely different. And what is that? Well, number one, we have not gone to hard requirements. We don't believe that we need to be omniscient up front. Uh, but we will make no decision before it's time. So you can, you can w- learn and work with industry to figure out not only what's possible, but what is achievable on the schedule that you want. So we've gone to characteristics of need. So those nine characteristics of need, prioritized by the chief of staff of the Army, uh, give maximum flexibility to industry to iterate with the government. The second thing we've done differently is the contract structure. So in this phase, which is phase two, uh, We've, we have five companies on contract to iterate with the requirements uh, generators as well as the PEO and his team. And they present a digital design, so no bending of metal, that's the third thing that's different, uh, digital design to government, government puts it through modeling and simulation, evaluates it, and then provides feedback to each of the five uh, so that they can now change their design if they wish. They can iterate with the government continuously throughout this contract um, so that then by the end of it, the government can look and say what is achievable and acceptable and then write a request for proposal next summer that will 
have the granularity needed to move into phase three and four, which will take us all the way through low rate initial production and a down select from three to one. Um, so that's what's happening in the space. Let me tell you, industry has responded beyond any imagination. Um, they are innovative. They're uh, transformational capabilities of technology to identify and destroy the enemy should they present themselves uh, is just exceptional. And now what we're working on, we're working on the margins, right? So we've got five companies moving forward straight ahead. And uh, what's, uh, you know, walk us through on the, on the schedule because obviously, um, you, you know, there have been some changes to that. Talk, walk us through on where we are on the schedule and when you want to get to a down select decision. Right. So the next request for proposal will come out in May. And that will be uh, for three awardees to compete head to head. And we, by 2029, we expect first unit equip, um, which is fast. Uh, when you're talking a developmental program, that's very fast. Um, it's not as fast as we want. We want, it, we want it tomorrow. But the reality is that if you want the best technology in the hands of our soldiers, we need to iterate with industry, iterate with soldiers, uh, continue to soldier influence design so that we can get the best thing in the world, so we can shoot, move, and communicate on the future battlefield. Um, you know, this has been a very exciting period in, in vehicle propulsion, right? I mean, electrification is something that's rather dramatic. General Motors, Ford are placing big bets. Tesla is going to come under pressure because every automaker on the planet is now chasing uh, that. Talk to us about some on-ramps about getting technology into this, right? Because at one point it was a little bit too ambitious in terms of power plants and what you guys wanted a couple of years ago when it was a future combat uh, system um, and, and then son of that and, and now obviously we are where, where we are. Um, what, what are the on-ramps to get some, some of this novel, interesting technology inserted into these vehicles downstream, you know, especially when some of these big companies are going to move away from building internal combustion engines. I mean, the United States Army doesn't want to be the last guy standing on that field. Right. So fully electric right now is not uh, necessarily tactically uh, achievable because of the amount of time it takes to charge vehicles, uh, replace battery packs, et cetera, the size of them on combat armored vehicles. It would the M1 tank would require another M1 tank just to be a battery, right? So that, that's kind of not tactically sufficient today. One day it will be. So we're really looking at the hybrid electric uh, capability out there. There's, and if you walk around the AUSA floor, there's some really interesting hybrid electric solutions out there. And what we believe is that at least uh, two or more of the competitors uh, for OMFB will go hybrid electric. And uh, we're very excited to see what their solutions are. But uh, we understand that that, uh, that provides us fuel efficiency, less soldiers on the road delivering fuel, but it also, what's really special, is it allows you a s silent maneuver option. So that you're, whether you're one of our robots or what the OMFB, you don't have the engine noise, you can move stealthily across the battlefield at night and put yourself into a place a relative advantage over your enemy very, very silently. Um, it, you know, in the two years since last uh, we, we did an interview, um, there have been a lot of combat vehicle developments around the world. The Russians have been moving very aggressively into unmanned uh, platforms. They tested them in, in Syria. You and I, I think, talked a little bit about that as well. What are some of the global developments and threat developments that are driving how you're looking at, at the capability and the vehicle needs of the United States Army uh, into the future. So look, we, we don't play home games and we have to be able to fight anywhere in the world. Uh, a lot of people will go against 
uh, China is our pacing threat. And I agree with that 100%. You heard the secretary say it, that China is our pacing threat. That's not, not, there's no question. But we could also have to fight Russia. So what we've asked our team to do is look at an enemy all-star team. So what is the best tank that one of our adversary, potential adversaries could have? What is the best air defense system? What is the best infantry fighting vehicle? And let's put those together and then develop our vehicles against that. Because if we can defeat the all-star, then we can absolutely defeat either Russia or China or anyone else that cares to stand in our way. Um, let's talk a little bit about Project Convergence. Um, at the end of the day, all of these systems are, are going to be degraded in their efficacy if there isn't a good battle network that they can draw off of. Talk to us about how the battle network, how you're thinking about the battle network, and how you're actualizing it in the future vehicle fleet, because ultimately victory, right, I mean, this is going to be the most contested real estate on the planet and ultimately you're still going to have to, right, Ross, Ross Kaufman out there is still going to have to execute the mission whether or not they have connectivity. Yeah, so Project Convergence uh, is using a you know, secure but unclassified network uh, that is low probability of intercept, low probability of detect, uh, very, very aggressive in that space. And now what we, we have to do is we've got to scale it. Um, so that, that's really exciting. But at the end of the day, as we spoke earlier, you're gonna, you have to accomplish the mission no matter what. And so our army has to be prepared to fight across all domains, but also degraded. So we have to give the tools to our soldiers to accomplish the mission with the best artificial intelligence, the best autonomy, the best robotics. But at the end of the day, when, when America's women and men must close with and destroy the enemy, they gotta be able to do that analog as well. Uh, how important are the cyber defenses of these vehicles because we're finding that even some of the more sophisticated systems we have now may have compromised hardware and software in them. How important is the cyber element as a, as a core for these vehicles? Oh, I think it's, it's paramount. I mean, we developed this incredible uh, prototype of a ro robotic combat vehicle medium. I showed it to my daughter. I was all excited. She's 16 years old and she says, well, can it be hacked? You know, first thing out of her mouth. Like, so that anything can be hacked. Um, but we harden every, every program hardens uh, as with what is known today um, against the most likely and most dangerous threat. So that is absolutely cooked in from the beginning. Uh, we're not going into this uh, with blinders on. We understand that that's how the enemy is going to come after us, and we need to absolutely be focused on it. Um, when, uh, when let me ask you one last question because uh, you're about to get the hook, and so am I. Uh, the Pacific. Um, there's a tendency of thinking of the United States Army as being sort of paramount in the European theater and certainly being that uh, the, the leading force and among the most important forces when it comes to deterring Russia. Uh, and, and that the Army, and, and I think there is a lot of debate and discussion about what the Army's strategy, presence, and all of that is going to be in the Pacific, and, and that's something that's still uh, developing. But how does an Asia requirement and a China requirement shape your vehicles uh, as well, right? Because there is uh, different corrosion, marinization. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other challenges, you know, weight uh, limitations, for example, uh, given that you're going to have to be landed on beaches and things like that. How, how are those uh, differing requirements shaping where you want to end up with a vehicle that is as useful uh, in the plains of Europe as it is in, in islands, rocky terrain, and what have you in the Pacific? Sure. So it, the Indo-Pacific region has a lot of land. Okay, and oftentimes pundits forget that. They say, oh, this is all going to be in the air and it's all going to be in the sea. 
But the reality is that if you want your enemy to capitulate, right, it's going to take a land force to close with and destroy. And so we know that if we fight in the Pacific, the obsolete man fighting vehicle and our robots and everything else we're developing will be there. And as part of that, we, we have all the environmental uh, requirements on all of our vehicles anyway. We look at the a global uh we really take a global approach to you know, what, what is going to corrode the vehicle, where, what is the trafficability, et cetera. The biggest difference in the Pacific for us right now is the uh, trafficability okay, and the infrastructure. So we're focused on that. We, we go into it with our eyes wide open. Um, and we make trades based on our pacing threat and where we think we'll, we'll fight most likely. Um, last question. You know, you, you mentioned uh, sustainability and supportability, in fact, in your, in your last answer. What are some of the approaches you're taking to reduce the logistical footprint of your vehicles, right? I mean, the Army has been a little bit cavalier on that. It was very paramount during the Cold War to try to reduce these logistics trains. What are some of the things you're doing in the, the conceptualization, the development, and eventually the production of the vehicles so that the logisticians have a little bit of an easier job because each spare part has a life uh, against it? Yeah, as a, as a lifelong tanker and a third-generation tanker, in fact, Logistics is just as important to, as gunnery to me. Um, prognostics, diagnostics, uh, driverless vehicles that we've got running around uh, in Louisiana right now. Uh, we, are, we are very mindful of reducing the logistics footprint and getting the prognostics and diagnostics so that we can anticipate when we're going to need the parts and we don't have to carry uh, such a huge amount of prescribed load lists, which is our Army parts list at the uh, company troop battery level. So we're, we're very, very focused on it. Um, and, you know, again, with the hybrid electric, we're looking at fuel. But the idea is that every truck that's on the road is there for a specific reason, and so that we reduce the risk to the force and keep these vehicles moving out so we can, we can fight and win our nation's wars. 15-second uh, additional question. Do... Um, how are those unmanned uh, tests going? Because I think people don't recognize that driving a tank or a heavy armored vehicle is one of the most difficult driver challenges on the planet. Um, from, you know, for a human operator, from a very uh, viewer limited position, um, how are these autonomous tests uh, going, uh, given that it's very easy to get an armored vehicle in a situation you can't easily get out of that's with tankers involved? Yeah, so there, there's a, a lot of different programs. I'll just cover two of them. First, we have the uh, leader follower. So you have a human in the lead vehicle, and then you have a, a certain number of unmanned vehicles that just follow the same path. Uh, reduces your manpower, uh, reduces the risk to, to soldiers on the battlefield. So that's going extremely well. Um, and then we have autonomous packages on our robotic combat vehicles. When you think robotic combat vehicles, you have five to seven tons, 10 to 12 ton variants that are out there now. It's going very well. We, we have the same uh, challenges that everyone in the world does right now with, with off-road autonomy. It's difficult. There's hard problems to solve. But um, when the robot gets in trouble, it asks the, the operator for help and the op operator uh, gives direction and moves out. It, they, they can't perceive depth of, uh, they don't know if it's a puddle or a lake, things, that, things of this nature. But um, we're making huge advances in this area, and we're getting a lot of help from industry, which is great. John Kaufman, thanks very, very much. Uh, break a leg on the program, and always a pleasure talking to you, thanks. sir. Thanks. Appreciate it.
And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.